Hi, everybody. Welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Let's start at the beginning. Four basic tenets to get us started. And let me be clear. Some of what you hear about the drive is going to be familiar to you. A lot of what you hear is probably not going to be familiar to you. But let's try. Let's see where we're at. First, to be human is to be an organism and a subject. Two, to be an organism and a subject, what Lacan refers to as a living subject, is to be sexed. Three, to be sexed is to experience a certain part of one's living, embodied, organismic being as lost. It's by way of the drives that we deal with certain other objects, all stand-ins for more primitive objects, like the breast, feces, the gaze, the voice, in such a way as to recover from them, to restore to ourselves this earliest loss. This is the wager of the drive theory that we're gonna be working with here, that it's by way of the drives that we recover and restore this earliest loss. And I wanna emphasize earliest loss. It ain't me, by the way. That's a quote straight from seminar 11. What is this loss of life that the organism sustains when it is taken up in the dialectic of the subject as a sexed being? What's lost, I'd suggest, is the fact that at root, there's nothing in organismic life as such that represents the subject in and as the bipolarities of sex. This bipolarity of sex exists only at the level of the norms and orders of sexed social life. You can find this in 11. You can find this in a creed. God didn't make us male and female. We did. To recover and restore this fact of life, apart from or at least unbeholden to the facts of life, is what it means to live out the drive. Understanding what we're after here, what all this amounts to, what this earliest loss is, is going to be our first move in today's session. Right out of the gates, I'm going to assign a name to it, libido. Libido is the word for an immortal, irrepressible, undivided, indestructible form of pure life. I'll show you the passages where I'm getting this from in a minute. The drive 
is a montage, a mashup, surrealist and otherwise, of openings, emergences, and returns by which we reclaim and restore libido. And enjoyment, jouissance, is how this feels. When we experience libido at the level of the drive, the word for that experience is jouissance. And we're going to clarify some different types of jouissance here. This is not the typical transgressive jouissance that always remains pegged to because just outside of the law, desire. This is a different kind of enjoyment we're talking about here, baby. All drives are sexual. Not because they represent the sexed polarity between masculine and feminine, male and female, or in the Freudian sense, active, passive, but instead because they are our points of entry, our ways into what Lacan calls, and I quote, the relation between the living subject and that which he loses by having to pass for his reproduction through the sexual cycle. That's a passage we're going to return to in a moment. What does this mean for analysis? And how might it bring us to this beyond of analysis that Lacan speaks of at the end of seminar 11? A beyond that, according to Lacan, has never been approached. To answer these questions is to bring us to the end of seminar 11, which is what we were reading and what we're commenting on today. But in order to reach these answers, we've got to take a few steps back. Moving backwards, I would suggest through a few key passages at the end of seminar 11 in the book's second part. To start, page 257. If you've got the text in front of you, pull it up. No sweat if you don't. We're working today, given the number of languages on the call here with us, with the standard English translation by Sheridan of Seminar 11. Page 257 is where we'll start. On 257, I'm at the bottom of the page. There's this bit about signifiers, sex, and death. I believe that this is one of the secret codes to unlocking what's happening in seminar 11. And by extension, what's happening with the drive. Something is happening at the level of signifiers, sex, and death that allows us to understand what Lacan here is doing with the drive. The middle of the page of 257, <clears throat> he starts by talking about this privileged object. You can guess what it is. 
the privilege object known as object little a. We'll talk about that, don't worry. You're gonna get some clean definitions of that one as well. This object supports that which in the drive is defined and specified by the fact that the coming into play of the signifier in the life of man enables him to bring out the meaning of sex. Namely, that for man, because he knows the signifiers, sex and its significations are always capable of making presence the presence of death. Now, it's not the only reason why sex cues up death. And I would suggest that although it's a very Lacanian reason, because we have signifiers in play and signifiers always bring us up against death. Why? Because when you have a word for something, you don't need the thing as much. And by that, I mean lowercase t, the entity, the referent. I can talk about burritos. I'm in San Francisco. I talk about burritos all day long. I can talk about burritos without having one in this room. I can talk about my parent without having them in this room. When you have a signifier, the thing, the referent, it can die, it can go away, it can be absent. That's the classic Lacanian turn here. There's something else though, some other reason why sex is tinged with death. And that's what we're gonna try and scare out. Reading on. The distinction between the life drive and the death drive is true in as much as it manifests two aspects of the drive. But this is so only on condition that one sees, get ready, all the sexual drives as articulated at the level of significations in the unconscious. In as much as what they bring out is death. Death as signifier and nothing but signifier. Still middle of the road Lacan. For, for can it be said that there is a being for death? Some of you are in philosophy departments. I'll let you all sort that one out. Here's our question. In what conditions, in what determinism can death, the signifier, spring fully armed into treatment? Key question. This can be understood only by our way of articulating the relations. Our first step back from the end of seminar 11 is here on 257. Our next step back is on page 204 to 205, where you will get explanations for what's happening here on page 257. It's funny reading Lacan. Um, what you know about the graph of desire and where it starts is in a basic Lacanian understanding of language, speech unfolds diachronically in time, one event after the other, one word after the other, the same way a melody unfolds in music. You don't have the melody all at once. It would just sound like this, that's not it. Melodies unfold one note at a time. So also does speech. It unfolds diachronically in time, chronological time even. But it works chirotically, for those of you that read Greek, I'm thinking of kairos here, the event, by a retroactive connection between the end of a sentence and its beginning. Bruce Fink has a good example of this about Jack and Jill. You know, Jack and Jill, who at a very young age were exposed to 
you don't know shit about Jack and Jill until you know the end of that sentence. It's when you find out that they were exposed to their uncle Leonard in all of his partial objects that you can understand something about Jack and Jill. There's a retroactive arrow that moves backwards in time. This is not just important for understanding Lacan's theory of language and speech. And speech for him, don't forget, is the centerpiece of psychoanalysis. It is the object of study. But it's also important for remembering when you read Lacan, it's not enough to simply read him one page after the other. Some of you have had very frustrating experiences with that. The trick to reading Lacan is also being able to read his books backwards. And that's what we're doing here. I'm trying to work out what Lacan is saying, but also at the same time to show you at least what works for me when I read Lacan. And oftentimes I get to the end and I need to work my way backwards to figure out what's going on. 257, I didn't find that extremely helpful. 204 and 205, however, lit. We're on page 204. The topic of sexuality comes up again. And what we're going to do here is you're going to see Lacan pulling sexuality into two different directions. One which is going to be very familiar to you all. And another which, if you were anything like me, is a little startling. Both are at work on page 257. Here on 204 and 205, you can see them in more crystallized, separate form. Bottom of page 204. Sexuality is established in the field of the subject by a way that is that of lack. Fair enough. Putting it out to you all, who's got a mic on and the book in front of them and wants to read starting with two lacks overlap here? Just go ahead and jump into it if you've got your mic on and your book in front of you. That's right. I'm asking. Two lacks overlap here. Uh, okay, cool. Two lacks overlap here. The first emerges from the central defect around which the dialectic of the advent of the subject to his own being in relation to the other terms by the fact that the subject depends on the signifier and that the signifier is, first of all, in the field of the other. Okay, pause right there. All right, that's the stone cold Lacanian stuff signifiers, big others, we get on the field of desire right here. This is fabulous stuff. What's new is what's about to come next. Please continue reading and thanks for letting me jump in. This lack takes up the other lack, which is the real earlier lack to be situated at the, I'm sorry, situated at the advent of the living being. That is to say, at the sex reproduction. The real lack is what the living being loses. That part of himself, K, living being, in reproducing himself through the way of sex. This lack is real because it relates to something real. Namely, that the living being, by being the subject to sex, has fallen under the blow of individual death. Brilliant. Okay, thank you. So let's see what's going on here. Let's first be clear about what's happening with the real. 
What Lacan is referring to here is an experience of life that is pure, undivided, eternal, indestructible. We're going to talk about what that is, and we're going to define that further. For now, I just want to put a pin in the word real. It's not the real. Before the symbolic, there was not the real. It wasn't like you were in this real bioanimalistic world, and then suddenly the symbolic shows up and squashes all that primitive, Edenic, blissful shit. That ain't how it works. The real is an effect structure of the symbolic. It's an effect of the symbolic. Whatever the symbolic can't metabolize goes into this category known as the real. The real comes second. It wasn't there first. The question Lacan is trying to get at here is what was there first, in a sense. The best clue we have for how he understands this pre-symbolic experience comes in another essay. It's in the function in the field essay, the great manifesto from the 50s of psychoanalysis, where he talks about this as the hic et nunc, the here and now from ancient poetry, in which all things run together in a constant state of becoming. It's some mystical shit, but it's a great lead as to what he's up to here. Libido is the organ for that experience. And what gets lost is its undivided status. When the symbolic cuts in, the undivided status of life is lost. Here, we're looking at something even more primitive, perhaps, than the symbolic, and that is the bipolarities of sexuation. Even before we have these primitive uteromorphic experiences of having a placenta separate from us, even before that, there's something happening when the primary caregiver, pregnant or otherwise, is painting the walls of your bedroom blue is picking out a name for you derived from a grandfather. Even before you emerge as an individual, you are not just signified, encrusted with signifiers, but you're sexed. That's what Lacan is after here. Here's the issue with that though, the more important part and what gets us to the real. The real lack, what makes this a real lack is the fact that when you are sexed, subject to the bipolarities of sex, you now have a relationship to death. And death is as real as it gets. The reason why this is important and the reason why Lacan is saying all this requires us to dip a little bit further back in this text before we continue with page 205. For my money, it's page 150. Around page 150, Lacan is introducing the notion of sex, almost as if to ask and answer a question, why haven't we been talking more about sex in Lacan's seminars? We're in seminar 11, where's sex and all this? 
page 150 begins, let us look at the facts. Time is of essence. Scroll down to the last line of the second full paragraph. We know that sexual division, insofar as it reigns over most living beings, is that which ensures the survival of a species. Lacan is a philosopher of science and biology. Get ready, here it comes. Whether with Plato we place the species among the ideas, or whether we say with Aristotle that it is to be found nowhere but in the individuals that support it, hardly matters here. Let us say that the species survives in the form of its individuals. Nevertheless, the survival of the horse as a species has a meaning. Each horse is transitory and dies. So you see the link between sex and death, sex and death of the individual is fundamental. What happens when the bipolarities of sex are dropped on your ass is that you now are subject to something that wasn't there before. And this is reproduction. Libido before reproduction was a certain type of X factor enjoyment. I hesitate to even use the word enjoyment because jouissance is not how we would describe that either. Even the best Lacanians struggle to find a word for this lived experience prior to sexuation and oftentimes resort to a certain type of jouissance. There is even a passage in Seminar 10 where Lacan himself slips, but not too far because for him, he puts jouissance there in quotation marks as if he himself is struggling for a term for this. That enjoyment though is split and barred when sexuality enters the picture. And sexuality brings with it its own kind of dialectic. Its primary dialectic is between reproduction at the level of a species and death at the level of the individual. So in order for a reproduction to occur and for a species to persist, individuals in this dynamic, horses and humans alike, have to get together and fuck. What also has to happen though is the biological finality of fucking, which is dying. The individuals that allow the species to live perish in a way that the species does not. That's what makes this earlier lack, earlier than the cut introduced by the no of the father. The lack that is earlier is real because it puts the subject this may be even the first flourish of subjectification on the path to death. Here's that link. Signifiers are connected to death because they allow absence to be made present. Hence the example of the burrito. I can talk about elephants too, and they can all go fucking die. I don't want that shit to happen. I love elephants. Elephants are dope. But if elephants go and die, I still have the signifier. And there's a very real sense in which as soon as I have that signifier, it's always a pronouncement of their death. My grandmother, as some of you know, was raised on a farm. 
and she was never allowed to name the animals. And I said, Grandma, why, why can't you name the animals? Why, what was that a big deal about? Because cow, cows are cute, right? She said, my dad wouldn't let me name the animals because they're not pets. They're not members of the family. That's product. That's what we make. No naming of animals so that when it's time for the slaughter, you don't fucking cry. You get the job done. There's a reason why whenever you want to take over a small country, hell, a big country, one of the first things you do is fuck with their tombstones. Change their names. Assign them numbers instead of names. You strip them of their signifiers. Easier to kill a number than it is to kill somebody with a name like yours, a name that also belongs to somebody you know, maybe even love. Signifiers are tinged with death for this reason. They pronounce loss, absence. But what Lacan's getting at here is another connection that we have to death that is more primitive, more primordial. Don't forget also that Lacan understands the fragmented body at the start of the mirror stage in all this business, this bumbling, discombobulated baby in front of the mirror, he sees that early stage, which we call the fourth trimester, when this worm-like human organism is doing nothing because they lack gross and fine motor skills. He also refers to that as being tinged with death. The baby newly born is not at the start of life. They're right on the verge of death. Think about that. We call it the fourth trimester because that motherfucker wasn't ready to come out. Put that baby back in, needs to cook a little longer. It came out early. A baby comes out early that can't stand up and do its own thing the way a horse could. When it's first born, you can put it in the corner of the room and walk away. Whether you're gone for five minutes or five weeks, that baby will still be there when you come back. It may be more or less dead by the time you come back, but it ain't going anywhere. Lacan's point about the fragmented body, this early stage of child development, the origin of the mirror stage too, because I know some of you are interested in that, is that this is a body tinged with death. It's not at the start of life. It's just hanging on to life. It more closely approximates death. I forget where he says it. It's somewhere in a creek. Here, though, we're going back a little further, because before that baby came slithering out, whether by slice or slice, it was sexed, put on the trajectory towards individual death. And whatever type of enjoyment, if you will, quotation marks around enjoyment, it had at the level of pure undivided life has now been sundered, split, divided, shoved aside, suppressed by the straits of sexuality, where enjoyment is subordinate to reproduction, where you enjoy genital contact because it enables reproduction. Or as evolutionary scientists would say, it's because genitals enable reproductive processes to occur that genitals feel good. The concentration of nerve endings in certain origins, usually swimsuit zones, has everything to do with the propagation of the species. 
But what we also know, as Lacan is pointing out here, is that the blow of individual death is at play here as well. As soon as this happens, you have fallen under the blow of individual death. What's going to happen next on page 205 is a shift into this topic that brings us again to the very end of seminar 11, love. Who wants to read? Somebody new, somebody whose voice we haven't yet heard yet because damn if the invocatory drive ain't tough to figure out, starting with Aristophanes' myth. Speak up, y'all. I'll read it. Thank you. All right. Aristophanes' myth pictures the pursuit of the compliment for us in a moving and misleading way by articulating that it is the other, one sexual other half, that the living being seeks in love. To this mythical representation of the mystery of love, analytic experience substitutes the search by the subject, not of the sexual complement, but of the part of himself lost forever that is constitutive, constituted by the fact that he is only a sex living being and that he is no longer immortal. Boom. Thank you. Brilliant. Yes. Okay. You ever see those necklaces that people wear and it's like, and it's like a heart but it's been broken in half and you have the one half and it's got the little jagged thing and you give the other half to your dog or your cat or your African gray parrot. And when the two of you are together, you like come together and you're now a whole creature. You ever hear that bullshit? You complete me. This is my love line to you. You complete me. And then they break up and they're, and they're gone. And you're like, I feel like I've lost something. I'm not complete. I feel like I've lost an appendage. You were my great appendage. I can't believe I lost you. It's like losing a leg. You were my fourth leg. I'm so sad. Um, this is the Aristophanes myth, is that you're always searching for your other half. And that when you come together, like the broken parts of a heart necklace, the full heart is made. Wait, how do we do that? Is that it? No, wait, that's it. Better? Better? No? No? Pumpkins? It's almost Halloween. Pumpkins? Heart? No. Um, yeah, Lacan's like, that ain't what we're up to. We're not looking for our other half. What we're looking for is something else. A part of ourselves lost forever. One thing to remember about psychoanalysis, it does not seek, it finds. So the very prospect of looking for something does not comport in theory or technique with Lacan's thought. The part of ourselves lost forever that is constituted by the fact that we are only sexed living beings. And as a result, we are no longer immortal. What the is he doing with immortal? We're going to come to it. Pausing there for a moment, I'll take another shift. You will now understand for the same reason that it is through the lure that the sexed living being is induced into his sexual realization. The drive, the partial drive, is profoundly a death drive and represents in itself the portion of death in the sex living being. Okay, let's go ahead and just answer one of the basic questions that we all have about the drive. Why does Lacan always say that every drive is a death drive? There are some good reasons for this. Drives pursue their own extinction in order to rise like a phoenix again. Drives are tinged 
with pain sometimes, not all the time, thank you, but sometimes. Drives are also repetitive, but that ain't why they're death drives. They are death drives because they are plugged into this primitive moment where the living organism is thrown into the bipolar straits of sexuality. It's by way of the drive that we reacquaint ourselves with that which has been lost forever, with our own immortality. Let's just be brazen about this. The drive is our portal to an immortality that has been lost forever. And the drive is connected somehow, we have to figure out how, to this portion of death in the sexed living being, this individual blow of death. The secret, I would suggest, will come to us when we arrive at the object of the drive. But we're not there yet. Thus defying perhaps for the first time in history. That's a big ass claim. Thus defying perhaps for the first time in history. Some of you who know me in other contexts, my primary job is as an intellectual and cultural historian. Anytime somebody shows up and says, for the first time in history, I'm like, damn, okay, let's see what this is about. That's a big claim. A myth that has acquired so much prestige and which last time I placed under the same heading as Plato places that of Aristophanes, I substituted the myth intended to embody the missing part, which I call the myth of the lamella. You've heard it before. We're going to dig in. The lamella. This is new. And it is important because it designates the libido, not as a field of forces, but as an organ. Drives have lots of erogenous zones, but they have only one organ. The libido is the essential organ in understanding the nature of the drive. This organ is unreal. Unreal is not imaginary. The unreal is defined by articulating itself on the real in a way that eludes it. And it is precisely this that requires that its representation should be mythical. This is another word that Lacan typically associates with this here and now of the all in a process of becoming that was there before the symbolic in terms of lived organic experience. But the fact that it is unreal does not prevent an organ from embodying itself. What we're after here is that organ. One more step back and we'll have it. Page 197. One ninety seven starts popping with the lamella. This is probably a passage you've seen before. Whether you've read it as we're about to read it remains to be seen. The lamella, he tells us toward the bottom, is something extra flat, which moves like the amoeba. It goes everywhere. It is related to what the sexed being loses in sexuality. It is like the amoeba in relation to sexed beings, immortal because it survives any division, any 
Cisaparis intervention, and it can run around. <laughs> well, this is not very reassuring. But suppose it comes and envelops your face while you are quietly asleep. You all have seen this movie. Do I even need to quote this movie? How many times has some Lacanian chimed in on this passage and been like, bro, that's aliens. That's the alien, you know, like Ridley Scott's movie, man. That's the alien. It glitz on your face, man. And it moves around. It's like this pure life force. That's not incorrect. That shit is true. My question, dear Ridley Scott, if you're out there, um, did you read this? Are you aware of this? Is this where you got it from? I think it was Ridley Scott. I forget. We're moving on here to the bottom of 197. This lamella, this organ, whose characteristic is not to exist, but which is nevertheless an organ, I can give you more details as to its zoological place, is the libido. It is the libido, pay attention here, y'all, qua pure life instinct, that is to say, immortal life or irrepressible life, life that has need of no organ. I wonder who else read this passage. One Deleuze, one Guattari, perhaps. Are we talking about a body without organs? We'll see. Simplified, indestructible life is precisely what is subtracted from the living being by virtue of the fact that it is subject to the cycle of sex reproduction. So this pure, immortal, irrepressible, organless, simplified, indestructible life embodied in the organ of the libido is what is subtracted from the living being when they are subject to the cycle of sex reproduction. At the end of sex reproduction, is the final blow to the individual known as death. So we're kind of stitching this all together into a single statement. And it is of this that all the forms of the objet that can be enumerated are the representatives, the equivalents. The objets are merely its representatives, its figures. So let's be clear about this. You have all of these objects the cigarette that you smoke, which is a metonymic stand-in for the breast. But the breast is a metonymic stand-in for something else, libido. So I want you to first start thinking about drive and its object as a series of metonymic substitutions from the trope metonymy, which means to change name in Greek. It's a changing of names, like a field progresses from corn to soybeans to hogs. Metonymy is about this substitutive move, which is how Freud could, whether he knew it or not, come up with the trope of displacement or dreams. Could, could you flush that a little more with some examples? Could you repeat that and give us a little more examples of the, the chaining? We will. We absolutely will. We're just getting started with this. Okay. Yeah. So the way it would work is every single drive is going to have what I will call imaginary objects on which we are fixated. Those imaginary objects, little i, little a's, they're specular images, are hooked into and they are substitutes for more primitive 
little a's, which are usually associated with certain erogenous zones, certain objects and things that are produced out of these zones. So the examples would be in the case of an oral drive, you may have the cigarette or the fingernail you like to chew on or the toothpick that's always in your mouth, which is a stand-in for the breast, which is a stand-in for libido. Anal drive. You may have all that money in the bank that you like to check on with these raising interest rates. Money is a stand-in for feces, which is the partial object of the anal drive. Feces, though, is a stand-in for libido. You see, they all come back to this primitive, pure, undivided life force, the first loss, the first objea, if you will, the primary loss, das ding, if you read Seminar 7, is this loss of libido. And that loss occurs when the straits of sexuality are imposed on the living organism. And remember, the primary antinomy in the straits of sexuality is between reproduction at the level of the species and death at the level of the individual. That's what, we're, that's what we're up to here. So we can go on and on and on. You could say the same thing about, I don't know, the invocatory drive. The dog owner telling the dog to speak and the dog barks and everybody claps. Oh, what a, what a well-trained dog you have. Yeah, um, the voice of the dog would be a stand-in for another voice which is the partial object of the invocatory drive, which is a stand-in for libido. Scopic drive, all them little hearts that we so love on Instagram. And don't get me wrong, I love that shit. Thank you all for your support on Instagram. Appreciate you. That legit, it's totally legit. But those are imaginary objects that we're fixated on. Sublimations, if you will, we'll come to that, of the gaze which is the partial object of the scopic drive. And the gaze is a substitute for, you guessed it, libido. This on page 198 is where Lacan is telling you what the original loss was. So don't worry, we'll come back with more examples. Here's one just to throw at you, reading on on page 198, the breast. As equivocal as an element characteristic of the mammiferous organization. The placenta, for example, there's another one, certainly represents that part of himself that the individual uses at birth and which may serve to symbolize the most profound lost object. That most profound lost object is libido. The placenta symbolizes libido. The breast symbolizes libido. And you see this in other places in Lacan too, especially when he starts talking about representatives of representatives, representation of the representative. Yeah, the big German term that he makes much of, Vorstellung's representants. What you see there is a series of metonymic representations of the drive. The Vorstellung represents a real event an actual body on fire in the other room. Here the Vorstellung would be the voice of the child, the speech of the child who shows up and says, Father, can't you see I'm burning? The smell perhaps in the room. But then you've got this representance of the Vorstellung, which would be the dream. Same thing is happening here. 
you've got a real lack that is occurring at the level of the referent for all other lost objects, libido. And then you've got these little a's, breast, feces, gaze, voice primarily, the traditional partial objects of the drive. And then beyond those, you've got these imaginary objects that are sublimated versions of those partial objects, breast, feces, gaze, voice. So you see there's like a hierarchy here. What we're working at right now is at the base of it. We're trying to figure out what it was and what's been lost to get this cycle started. One more pass at it, and then we'll get to some more discussion. It's on the next page, page 199. About the middle of the page, the paragraph begins, the relation to the other. The relation to the other is precisely that which, for us, brings out what is represented by the lamella. Not sexed polarity, the relation between masculine and feminine but the relation between the living subject and that which he loses by having to pass for his reproduction through the sexual cycle. So what is at stake in this sexed polarity, again, is the relationship between us as living beings, but also as subjects, which is where we started, a living subject, and what we lose in becoming living subjects, sexed beings by having to pass for our reproduction through the sexual cycle. In this way, I explain the essential affinity of every drive with the zone of death. Here it is again. Every drive is a death drive because it is also connected to this strait of sexuality that we have to pass through in order to become living subjects. This is like, this is before we get to talk of castration. This is before the no name of the father. This is before some of that shit. This is primitive. And that's why it's so interesting because this is one of the great passages where you hear this in Lacan. In this way, I explain the essential affinity of every drive with the zone of death and reconcile the two sides of the drive, which at one and the same time makes present sexuality in the unconscious and represents in its essence, death. I wanna say one more thing about this. The following line, Lacan goes to the unconscious and he says, you will also understand if I have spoken to you of the unconscious as of something that opens and closes, the most important part of what he's saying there is the opening and the closing. The unconscious emerges as a kind of opening of something that could otherwise be closed. You see, transference is what happens when the opening, whereby some symptom, if you will, some expression of the unconscious would emerge, would be expressed like a turd, is closed. Transference is important, according to Lacan, because its closure of the opening that the unconscious has access to is significant. It tells you, even if you don't get anything out of that opening, where it is. The transference, the point of the transference that marks a closing of the unconscious is incredibly significant for this reason, according to Lacan. 
even though it's a shutting down of the unconscious, it still tells you that there's a portal to the unconscious right there. It's the X that marks the spot where the digging can occur. And that's what he's after here. I flag it for you because this is the exact same structure that every single erogenous zone that is attached to the drive also has. They are openings, mouths on the human body that have a rim-like structure and with the exception of the outer ear, which is significant, can all be closed. I can close my eyes and open them. I can close my mouth and open them. Your anus, thank goodness, is usually closed. But by God, if you can't open that. The opening and closing function of the erogenous zone is absolutely crucial to how the drive operates, but also how the unconscious operates. And I'd say conceptually, that's the big stake here. We're going to come to the source. We're going to come to all four parts of the drive. But right now, I just want to flag this for you. The unconscious for Lacan operates like a series of pulses when it finds expressions. It opens up and in a burst, something comes out and then it usually closes right back up. Our job is to make sense and come to terms with those little outbursts, if you will. Let's take a couple of questions. It's been a lot so far. We're about an hour into it and I wanna make sure you have a chance to feedback. I'm not really paying much attention to the chat, unfortunately. So by all means, turn your mic on, ask a quick question if you've got one. We won't spend a lot of time with questions because I know you wanna get to more of the meat, but I do think it's important to pause for a question or two. I just had a real, real quick question. <clears throat> I don't know if it's too ableist in its thinking, but isn't this closing the ears? I mean, you have to have the ability to close your ears, but could that be considered a closure of that erogenous zone? Yeah, it could. <clears throat> I mean, we have all these ways that we close our ears. Um, Lacan never tires of referring to the biblical passage about how we have ears in order not to hear. So selective hearing, we have, there's a lot you can do here with hearing. Um, there's some, there some, there some great stuff out on the human voice and, and auditory channels and the like. Um, I think it's interesting that the ear can't be closed and you can see the drives when they're operating, they're going everywhere. So recall, for instance, the famous passage um, in St. Augustine, where he takes one of his homies to the gladiatorial games. And the guy is so fucking horrified. It's like watching Dahmer on Netflix, man. It's like, you can close your eyes, but you can't close your ears. And that's what Augustine points out. He's like, ah, alas, he could close his eyes and shut down in a sense, the scopic drive perhaps, but he could not close his ears. And I would just add one more thing to that, just by way of illusion. You ever have those experiences when you're just starting to fall asleep for a nap or whatever, and suddenly your ears and your hearing start to become a little more like acute? 
like you can just hear things are kind of a little bit louder and all these noises, almost like that part of the sensory manifold gets turned up as this part of the sensory manifold gets turned down for sleep. It's important to have this kind of stuff. <laughs> Why did Van Gogh slice off his ear? <laughs> so that we could laugh about it now, of course. No, it's, it's legit. It's unfortunate people be slicing off their own ears and stuff like that. But you know what? You know what he didn't do, which he probably should have done? Put that shit in a skillet and eat it. Auto cannibalism is so completely real. You can go down to Mexico. I could go down to Mexico, maybe easier than some of you, but you can go down to Mexico right now. I could have my foot amputated. I could be back by Friday and having my homies over for foot talk-ups. I could be making that shit up. That's real. Auto cannibalism is a very interesting move here. It's relevant to the drive because the first active stage of the drive is usually autoerotic. You all are this, awesome. this is great. Yep. Tonight. This is the two, two quick questions. I was wondering just, um, I have a basic understanding of hard objects, but not like, you know, tons and tons. Could you say maybe briefly about like, kind of like, uh, like you know, Freud to, Freud to Lacan on hard objects. And then secondly, just thinking about like, um, so I work with ASL sometimes, which is different than speaking one word at a time. So I can be signing with one hand, like in a chain versus holding one sign, which I was also thinking about. I remember when your courses, you talk about, again, this idea of the, the sentence is how we progress. But then if you think about, the, the the drumming in a certain sense. So we hear the melody progressing, but then the brain likes a, if you want to call it a polyrhythm or two things going forward and pausing. So I was just wondering, as opposed to that idea that we had the line going forward and then at the end, you know everything about the dynamic between, if you want to call it like a, a drum holding the, I forget, the ostinato as things progress. And then second, if you could just say something quickly, just a little more about part objects and and, and what we're talking about. Yeah, I'll try, Jim. Um, and I'll try also to just be um, quick, but also elusive here. Um, elusive, not elusive. I don't want to be elusive, but here I go anyway. Um, what we know about Lacan's approach to analysis, as he's spelling it out for folks in the 50s. In the 1950s, Lacan is pretty clear that the centerpiece of analysis, as you heard me say, is speech. And the first song that he heard in analysis is empty speech. Well, that puts the analyst in a very peculiar position as auditor, more precisely for Lacan as addressee. And the question then is, how do you respond to the analyzant's empty speech, to their ego speech? Do you reject it? Do you acknowledge it? Do you ignore it? Any move you make is going to be a response, even if you don't make a move. Lacan, though, shifts away from that pretty quickly and wants to just talk about hearing. And it's important to note here because the, the image that he calls to mind in the 50s is that of a musical score. He thinks that listening to human speech would be like studying a, the score for a symphonic performance where you would have different instruments playing different things at different parts and you're listening to them all at once as they move through. Listening would be something that would occur at multiple registers. And I think that in keeping with what he's doing there, we could also say that this is what it would mean to be a great analyst in the room with somebody. Now, one of my friends, great friend, Lacanian, he has switched totally to the phone. He meets with all of his analyzands just strictly through the phone. I won't tell you who he is because you probably know him. It's all through phone. 
And I said, bro, what the fuck? You can't, what, what about all the nonverbal channels that would come in with, with analysis? He says, listen, man, the centerpiece of Lacanian psychoanalysis is the voice, speech. That's all I need. I can do everything I need to do with them and read all that needs to be read at the level of the voice. Smart claim, interesting claim, maybe brazen. I was a little stunned, but nevertheless, you know, it's somebody I regard highly. So here we are. In the room, though, you would have all these other channels going. So as some of you know, my doctorate is in communication. And one of the things that I was early on very interested in is in all of these channels beside and against language. So you have a linguistic channel, which would capture the verbiage, all the words that you're hearing me say right now. You would also have a paralinguistic channel, which would include the contours of the voice how long my pauses are between the end of this sentence and the beginning of the third. Inhalations, exhalations, speeding up of speech. In other words, the contours of your words. So there's a verb and then there's voice. But at the same time, when you're dealing with embodied social interaction, there's also a nonverbal channel, which includes all kinds of stuff. Haptics, touch. Oculesics, the study of eye movement when you're talking with somebody. Gestures, of course, are in there, including holding a sign and using ESL as you are at the same time doing things with speech. My point here is that the thick medium of human speech requires a thicker ability to describe it that moves beyond one single human medium of the ear and the listener, it would also include the eyes. Olfactics is also a part of nonverbal communication. How the patient smells when they arrive at your office matters. And let me tell you something, analysts, your offices smell weird. I'm just going to tell you this. I've been in some offices and your offices smell strange. Actually, most of them are in San Francisco and the buildings are really old. So it kind of has something to do with that. Smell matters. Eye movement matters. Touch matters or lack thereof. I can remember one time with an analyst, with my primary analyst, um, just saying that I need a hug. And she was down. But let me tell you, it was the weirdest fucking hug in the world. I got the hug, but it was weird. It was absolutely strange. Can't really explain it. Can't really explain it. Dahmer could probably explain it, but I don't know what it meant. So all of these channels would be firing at once. With them, there would be multiple drives. With them, there would be multiple partial objects that can be switched around. The aging breast turns to shit. I enjoy shitting on beautiful breasts. So there are these ways that you can move between them. We'll come to it, but first I think we need to get a little more like understanding of the structure of the drive, and then we'll start messing with the objects. Don't worry, Jim, it's coming. All right, y'all, you ready to launch forward? Anybody else got a burning question? Okay. Um, let's summarize what we've got going here so far. All drives are death drives on account of their relation to the living subject within the sexual cycle. Let me be clear. 
sexed being is a deadly being. And you can Google search that. That shit's Lacan. Sexed being is a deadly being. It is lethal because it subordinates the libido as pure undivided life to the bipolarities of sexual reproduction at the level of the species. But here's the hook. Again, a species only survives in the form of its individuals insofar as they reproduce, but each individual, each member of the species is transitory. The horses that made the one that lives in the field behind your house are transitory. They may die, but that doesn't mean they take the whole species with them. This is what we're getting at. Atop this summary, I wanna add something, something that some of you have heard before something that you may have noticed in your reading of Lacan. It's this quote from Heraclitus on page 177 of Seminar 11. To the bow, bios, is given the name of life, bios, and its work is death. Now it's a pun. By shifting the accent above the I and the O around, Heraclitus is able to talk about bow as in like bow and arrow, but also about life. And what he's able to do is to talk about something happening here in this mashup of life and death. You may refer to life as bios, but make no mistake, the work of life is death. We are programmed to die. And it's a damn good thing that we do because I don't think this planet could foster any more humans. To recover one's libido at the level of the drive in the field of enjoyment, apart from the demands of others, and thus our own desires, is to recover an unreal because pre-real, pre-existent mythical experience of life in the midst of death. And here I'm foreshadowing where we're headed. At stake in recovering one's libido at the level of the drive is not just a simple sense of jouissance, <clears throat> but an experience of life in the midst of death, in the field of death, by way of absence instantiated by the signifier. You know the field of death I'm talking about, where absence is instantiated by the signifier? It's castration. It's the very same reason why in the graph of desire, the mathing for the drive appears not on the side of jouissance, but on the side of castration. It is in the midst of the death inaugurated by language acquisition, which began with the name of the father. Another concept that we could spend a couple of sessions on. It's there that the drive finds enjoyment. Or at least it's there that the drive then launches, if you're looking at the graph of desire, the return arc back, back towards Jouissance. But it is in the field of death, death inaugurated by the signifier. Because remember, I can talk about elephants and they can all fucking die, but I can still talk about elephants. That foreshadowing 
coupled with the Heraclitus quote, <coughs> it brings us to this definition of the drive that I gave earlier, drive as montage. The prevailing image that Lacan provides of the drive looks a lot like an arrow that is shot, but that strangely also returns back to the shooter. You know the image I'm talking about, right? Let me see if I can pull it up for you here. I'm gonna share my screen and hope for the best here. As some of you know, who have been in seminars and the like with me in the past, this is sometimes where things get a little bit weird when I start shifting to the pen tab, but we're gonna do it anyway. Of course we're gonna do it. All right, do you all see this diagram? Somebody, somebody shout out that you can see this. So I make sure, all right, Christopher, thank you. Um, what we have here is the basic diagram of the drive that Lacan gives us in seminar 11. You can track it down on your own, but this is pretty much it. And what I wanna show you is first of all, the arrow. You see the arrow, right? It comes out from a source with a rim-like structure. And I'll go ahead and start writing some of this stuff in for us. Here's your source with a rim-like structure. This is also going to be, I'm gonna abbreviate it here, an erogenous zone. This is the mouth, this is the anus, this is the outer ear, this is the eye. The drive has its source in some kind of an opening, but the aim, the way that it travels, its operation, is kind of weird. In fact, for the French out there, the drive is drifty. It has a drift to it. Here's how it drifts. It comes out, but then oddly enough, unlike any arrow you've ever shot, if you're lucky, it comes back. Now, as somebody trained in instinctive archery, one of the things I love to do more than anything on the archery field is just shoot an arrow straight up in the air and then run like hell. No, but usually then like hide behind something just to see it come down near me. It's a bad tendency. It's not recommended on the archery course, but nevertheless, it's one of the only experiences when the arrow comes back to you, shooting straight up in the air. That life death bow that Heraclitus is talking about it's no coincidence that if you want to know the page where this diagram comes up, it's on the page exactly after Lacan presents the Heraclitus quote. The arrow is key here. Drives typically have four features, functional features. The first we can write down here, it would be like the thrust. And the thrust is constant. 
this is like from Freud to Lacan, but Lacan's always going to add something, even though he says he's just doing what you know Freud says. The thrust is constant. It's not rhythmic, which in other words, it's not biological. That's important here. The drive has an energy behind it that is constant, that never goes away. It doesn't wane. It's not a moon. It's a constant thrust. When the drive is operationalized, it, if you will, comes out and it has an aim. The aim of the drive, though, is drifty and circuitous and has a return to it. The aim of the drive is to return to the source from which it came. And the thrust gives it the energy to do so. But what I would suggest is that it is the gravitational pull of the object of the drive. that allows it to make that return. And I would just suggest, to be clear, that the gravitational pull put forth by the object is not that of a planet, asteroid, moon. It's that of an opening. You see little a, I want you to think black hole. It's the gravitational pull of an opening, not an entity. The object of the drive is not a thing. It may look like a thing. It may look like the cigarette that you're pulling out of the box. It is not. The proper object of the drive is not an object, but an opening. We'll come to it in a second, because this opening is usually plugged with stuff. I want to emphasize this to know that the object here is something that is circled around. That's why I've drawn this little arrow around A. Whatever it is, if this is an oral drive, little A here could be a breast, or more than likely it would be a stand-in for the breast, a sublimated version of the breast at the level of, I don't know, let's say you have a water bottle that you always drink from that has a straw built into it. That might be the thing you reach for when you get a little nervous in a meeting. I don't fucking know. But the idea is that that straw could serve as a sublimation of the breast, which would occupy the space of imagine or, or of, of obja here, because the breast would be something that's prohibited from you. And if you don't believe me, let me tell you this. Imagine yourself at a meeting. You and your water bottle are at an important meeting at work, and you're feeling a little nervous. And you know what happens next? Your mother walks in, lifts up her shirt, exposing her bare breasts, walks over to where you're sitting at the table and presents it to you and says, suck. I'm here. Are you thirsty, son? Daughter? I'm here. Can I, what would you like for lunch? It's almost lunchtime. Here's my breast. Yeah, you think you were nervous at the meeting causing you to grab that water bottle? This is how you know that it is a prohibited object. The partial objects of the drive are always objects that have been placed under erasure. They've been prohibited. The process of prohibition of the mother's breast would be called weaning. Doesn't mean you stopped wanting it, even demanding it. It just means that you needed to find a substitute for the breast. So it could be the breast that becomes the bottle 
that becomes the thumb that you suck, that becomes the nail that you bite, that becomes the straw of your water bottle, that becomes the cigarette, that becomes whatever the hell else that you might put in your mouth. And I want to be clear, this is a really basic understanding of how the drives operate. It's never just about what you put in your mouth. The mouth is an in-out operation. This is what Kristeva understood about the human body and her theory of abjection. It's a marker of inner and outer. It's a place where those two worlds can access each other. The oral drive, in other words, has as much to do with what you put in your mouth as with what comes out of it. That's why Lacan has the famous example in seminar 11 of ordering food. The food that you order off the menu at the restaurant is as activating of your oral drive as the eating of that food when it arrives at your table 20 minutes later. The oral drive is about the in-out operation of the mouth. It's not about objects. It's about openings that operate. The source of the drive, the erogenous zone of the mouth, the fence of the teeth, as Homer put it, mirror structurally the object of the drive, which is also an opening. Obja is not a thing. It's the minimum irreducible distance between two entities that allows them to remain distinct and appear as such. It's a gap, it's an opening. We'll come to it in a second when we talk about the object more directly. Right now, I just wanna get all four parts out there. The thrust is constant. The source is an opening with a remnant-like structure an erogenous zone, mouths all over the human body. The aim of the drive is drifty, circuitous, and always returning. That return, I would just add, is part of what allows for drive satisfaction. And it is beyond the pleasure principle, my friends. This is satisfaction beyond pleasure and its flip side, which is on the same coin, which is displeasure. This is something else. The satisfaction of the drive returning to its source, of that arrow sizzling down from the sky to land in the soil at your feet is different from pleasure and displeasure as regulated by the pleasure principle. The object of the drive, I would say for us, is the first and foremost thing we need to talk about. It's an opening represented by OJR, which we will define. Here's what else though. It's fucking variable. When you start talking about the vicissitudes of the drive, which the best translation of which, better than vicissitudes even, is just adventures. You know, I mean, if you go back into the German, it starts talking about like fate and destiny. But really what we're talking about is an adventure. The drive is an adventure where some energy comes out circles around an object and then returns back to you. The object around which the drive circles is an opening plugged with all manner of things. The stuff that you put in your mouth, for instance, is wildly variable to the point of being like, the drive is almost indifferent. Everybody's gonna have a different set of objects for an oral drive. A lot of them will be fairly similar, like, I doubt that the object of your oral drive is going to be a car, because try fitting that in your mouth. 
there's something limiting here about the human form, but nevertheless, what you put in your mouth is wildly different from what others put in their mouths, some ways extreme. But the point here is that it's variable. The drive, remember, all drives are death drives. They trace their origin back to libido, which in turn gets connected to all these partial objects that have been prohibited, constrained, whether it's the breast, feces, the gaze, or someone's voice. And then there are all these sublimated versions of those objects. The voice that is prohibited, that connects to libido, is substituted with the bark of the dog when you say speak. The invocatory drive operates at both levels. Our job is to understand how to get from those imaginary objects that plug the hole back to the hole that can be treated as a portal back to libido. So like I said, thrust and aim, they're fairly clear. Thrust is constant and aim is circuitous. Object and source are more complicated and for my money, way more interesting. So let's start with the object. Let's get through the object and maybe take a break. I mean, you can always take a break. Don't worry, this is gonna be a recorded session. But maybe we need a break after we do some object. It's gonna require us to think a little bigger and broader because obviously if the object of the drive is object little a, we got some work to do as Lacanians, right? This is such a central concept. So let's start big and basic. Is psychoanalysis a science? You damn straight. But it is not like most modern sciences. Most modern sciences are concerned with stuff, with objects. Psychoanalysis is not concerned with stuff in the sense of objects. It's concerned with openings in the sense of causes, what causes or allows objects to appear in a phenomenological field. That's what interests psychoanalysis. To the point that you might even say, if modern science is obsessed with objectivity, psychoanalysis, it is more concerned with something called objectality objectality, which according to Lacan is not a study of stuff in the world. It's a study of causes. It is a study of the conditions of possibility for the appearance of anything like an object in a world to be studied by modern science. This is in many ways why psychoanalysis trumps modern science, because it's less concerned with the objects of scientific inquiry than it is with the conditions of possibility for any certain object to pop as an entity to be studied in the first place. Now let's take a simple example. This amazing pen, you see it? It's black, it's right here. You also see the wall behind me, which is white. Here's what I would suggest. In order to have a pen to study and consider, you have to have two other entities. In other words, in order to count to one, you first have to count to three. 
Here's why. In order for this pen to appear as something in the foreground for us to consider and look at, it has to be distinguished, distinguishable from a background that allows it to appear. You see, if the wall were painted black, you might not see this pen. There would be no distinction perceptible. But there's also this third element. The third element is the minimum irreducible difference between the blackness of this pen and the whiteness of that wall. There is a gap or a line or a cut, a single stroke, a furrow between this pen in the foreground and that wall in the background. This is the cleanest, if most philosophical definition of objea that we have. It's the minimum irreducible difference or distance between two entities that allows them to appear distinct. Objea is the minimum irreducible distance between two entities that allows them to remain distinct, or at least to appear different. That's that third element. If you were to remove that third element, you would not have two entities anymore. They would suddenly merge together into one. Those of you that listen to our podcast, you heard me recently talk about a cup of water. Make that two cups of water. If you have a half cup of water and you pour some from another glass into it, in that cup of water, you now don't have two separate fields of water. Now, maybe at a molecular level, you might get there. But what you have is one bigger cup of water. The distance and distinction between those two bodies of water has gone away. Obja is whatever is there as a space or a gap, a demarcation that allows two entities to appear distinct. The object of the drive as Obja, which you can see here in Lacan's diagram, is no exception. I would also add, alluding to what we're going to do next week, that the object of the drive sometimes looks a lot like that of anxiety. Anxiety is not without an object, Lacan tells us. And the reason why he puts it that way is because the object of anxiety is not really an object at all. It is in fact an opening. See, that's what makes us anxious is when a desirous other approaches us and takes that gap from us. The lack that we would use to cultivate our own desire is now squished by the overweening desire of somebody else, oftentimes a primary caregiver, a stand-in for the big other. That's anxiety, where lack is lacking, where that opening, that minimum distance that I need to remain and experience myself as distinct from you is now gone. And I'm smothered and swallowed and consumed by this devouring other. That's fucking anxiety. That's what it amounts to, is when that minimum irreducible distance has been reduced and closed or is threatened to be reduced or closed. So the opening that the drive circles around is not unlike the opening 
that in moments of anxiety is taken from us by a desirous other. Can and I ask a question, Sam, clarity? Yeah, go ahead. Could you give us an example from like a movie or something or, you know, with people with, again, how you're describing LJI here, like I kind of kind of got it partly, but I kind of got lost with like kind of the use in psychoanalysis. Could you give us an example with like, uh, like instance, like, you know, like maybe from something like a movie or something? No. Or or just like another thing besides you were saying that like with, um, I, I, uh, I'm just trying to um, like how object has been explained to me before. This seems all, I'm trying, I'm missing part of it. If you could sort of say it another way with like, besides the issue, besides showing us the pen. Yeah. Um, no, I can, I will, it'll come to it, but just hold off for a second. I don't want to get sidetracked down into this object stuff. Okay. What we want to think of it as is the experience of lack. So for instance, I'm driving down. Oh, here I go again. Now I'm getting back into the example. I just told you I wasn't going to do it. And now here I am doing it. I'm doing exactly the thing that I said I wasn't going to do. What am I supposed to do here? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Listen, um, it's oftentimes talked about around desire that everybody knows what they want. I mean, obviously that's not true, but nevertheless, I'm sure you could list on a piece of paper, 10 things that you know you want. The question though, is why do you want it? And the answer is always the same because you lack it, but it's more precise than that. Obja is the experience of lack. It's a symbol of what it feels like to be missing something. So for instance, um, I don't have horns, but I don't experience myself as missing them. Obja is a symbol. That little A is just a placeholder that Lacan uses to talk about the experience we have where we feel like we're missing something. The job of advertising is to continually produce objets. So my iPhone is ancient. It's a riot at bars. Everybody loves it when my phone hits the table. They're like, what the hell is that? And I'm surrounded in San Francisco by billboards for, I don't know, iPhone, what? It's not even, they don't advertise the phone anymore. Now it's just some weird image of a cat's eyeball. And that's what I'm supposed to want now. What am I missing in that moment? What's the experience of lack? The phone is the thing that if I get, I'm told the experience of lack will go away. What I'm missing though, what I'm missing, the object cause of my desire for the phone, Jim, that little A, is a loving relationship with my cat. If I get close enough to my cat to have a picture of her, of her eyeball, let me tell you, I got two cats and a dog. At least one of those cats is gonna straight up murder me or at least try. They might wait. I think she'd probably wait until I fell asleep. And then she'd remember that I got all up in her face with my iPhone six and come in and murder my ass. OJI here is not the phone. Obje is the, the phone is the answer to my experience of lack. What I'm lacking is a beautiful cat in the first place. My cat is hideous. The cat in whose face I would get is a filthy, gnarly beast. I don't have a pretty cat. My cat's eyes aren't pretty. They aren't, they aren't deep. I lack that very thing. It's not the phone I lack. It's a cat worth photographing with a new phone that I lack. OJA captures that experience of lack. 
And the job of advertising is always to produce the experience of lack. And I'll offer that as a very simple example so that you can then, each of us, can then go and notice the ways in your life that lack gets produced. It can be the teaser at the end of the episode that inclines you to watch yet another one. But it's the production of the experience of lack that we see over and over again when things are advertised to us. It's a great place to find terrific examples of OBJA. There are other more profound ones too, but let's stop there. Because like I said, oh, okay. I don't want to get so, too- So just a tiny thing. I didn't quite understand the three verses too. If you were by your back wall and there was a dark pen in the wall, that would be two things. I didn't quite understand the three that you were saying to set the situation up. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. So in order to have two entities, there has to be some sort of a distinction between them. And that distinction is a differential relation, but it is also an entity of its own. And that's the that's the- counterintuitive way that Lacan thinks here is that the distinction between pen and wall, it's neither pen nor wall. It is something in its own right. And that is what little a symbolizes. Little a always symbolizes a distance between two people, between two entities, a distinction. It's always a crack or an opening that allows those two entities to appear distinct. It doesn't have to be much. It can even be the minimum distance or difference, but it is always at the level of a gap or an opening. Um, and the important thing for Lacan is to make that itself an entity. It's not just the relationship between two things. It is the relationship that now becomes the topic of interest. So that's the third element. So you'll hear me joke sometimes that in Lacan's thought, one plus one always equals three. Because in order to have two entities, you always have to have a third, which is their differential relationship. And he's getting this from his understanding of how language operates. Language operates in exactly the same way. Language is a differential system of signs where you have cat and eyeball, perhaps in the same sentence and perhaps related to each other, but a cat doesn't equal an eye. Cats are fuzzy four-legged things that typically have eyes, but the eye is different from the cat. But in order to understand the cat, you have to look up the eye. And so you get this whole differential experience, like working through a dictionary in a language you're just learning. Like the dictionary is in the foreign language. You ever encounter those? Like you try to learn um, like uh, Swahili or Twi, and you get the dictionary and it's in Swahili or Twi, and you're like, oh, because it's tough. You're just learning the language. You look up the word and you see another word in the same language that you're learning. And now you have to look up that word too. And guess what? If you move in the same dictionary, it's going to be written similarly in Twi or Swahili. So the idea here is that there's a differential relation that allows a language to operate. The signifiers are always related to other signifiers. Words like fuzzy, four-legged are part of what you need to understand a cat, but no one of them is equal to cat. Their relation is differential. And that's what language is. Language is a differential system of signs. And that's where Lacan's getting all this. What he has done with little a is found a a vowel that he wants to assign to something that ain't this or that. 
That's the important part. The little a is always something that ain't, A-I-N-T. And that has a little a in it, so just remember it that way. It's always what ain't. The difference between the pen and the wall ain't the pen, and it ain't the wall. It's something else. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.